Lord, thank you for your word, God, and I thank you for um, another opportunity to start another book of the Bible. Lord, I pray that as as we study it um, over the course of who knows how long, <laughs> that you'll you'll use your spirit to teach us, um, not just in knowledge, but God, that you'll change us and conform us more into the image of Christ, that we'll see as we study your life um, and primarily the three years of your ministry, that we'll want to walk more deeply with you, that we'll want to be more like Christ in our lives. I thank you for this time, Lord, and I pray that you would help me speak with, with clarity, God, and that Holy Spirit, you would come and, and teach us all and convict us and where we need convicting and comfort us where we need comforting and um, just show us all how much we, we desperately need the gospel in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're starting our fourth book of the Bible as we're studying through. We've been through Galatians, First Timothy, First John, and now we're starting Matthew. Matthew has 28 chapters. And so, um, unlike the other ones where we pretty much just kind of plow all the way through, we will take some periodic breaks through the book of Matthew. So, um, it doesn't feel like we're in one book for the next like three years or something. We'll, we'll take some breaks. But um, <clears throat> the reason why, just kind of a reminder, the reason why we like to study through books of the Bible is because when we do that, when we, ha- we just go all the way through a book of the Bible, it causes me to go to to kind of different topics that maybe I would never ever just kind of on my own want to want to approach. And I made a list of what I think are at least 20 things that I think we'll, we'll get to as we go through uh, the book of Matthew. And so if some of these hopefully will will pique your interest. You can you can keep um, listening in. But it says the, uh, the these are the, the 20 things I think we'll cover. And there'll probably be more. The coming Messiah, the birth of Jesus, the temptation of Jesus. And how could he have really ascended? Um, the Things like anger and lust and divorce and remarriage, what it looks like for us to give to the needy, what prayer and fasting looks like, what does anxiety look like in our lives, should we judge other people, um, what it looks like to be truly saved, healings and parables, and what are those all about, um, holding other people accountable and what that should look like in our lives, rebuking people who are Pharisees or legalists, um, eschatology, that'll be fun. Um, the Lord's Supper, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and what it looks like for us to be sent on mission. And I'll just go and tell you, like if I was pick, picking topics, there's a lot of these things I just wouldn't pick by myself. But the text is going to force us into going through some of these things. And so that's why I love preaching through books of the Bible, um, as well as uh, God's promised us that His His Bible, His book, is sharper than any two-edged sword. That it is the thing that cuts down, and that it's inerrant, and that it's God-breathed, and He He will use His text to shape us and mold us. So my goal always is that as we look through books of the Bible, is that you'll be transformed more into the image of Christ um, and that he'll use his word to, to guide us. So we're going through the book of Matthew. And here's the, here's the interesting thing. Um, the first six verses, if you've noticed, is a genealogy. And so it, I think it would be easy for us to think, well, you know, like the table of contents in a book, we just kind of skip over that part and get to the first part, you know, we just kind of skip over. Well, the thing about, you know, genealogies in the Bible and all that kind of stuff, even the genealogies are inspired, like even the genealogies are God's words. And so he wants us to even read those and study those and understand what those things are for and why those things are there. So let me give you an idea of what we're going to be looking like over the next really uh, month and how we're going to study the genealogies and why we're doing it this way. 
and you can understand. So what we're doing today is the first six verses, and you're thinking, oh my goodness, that means two more weeks at least of genealogies. Yes, but here's why. Um, because so far, <clears throat> and it's just been accidentally, um, all we've done is New Testament books of the Bible. We've done Galatians, 1 Timothy, and we've done 1 John, and now we're going into Matthew. And so um, it could be perceived that you could think, well, Fudd doesn't really care too much about the Old Testament. Um, he just keeps doing New Testament, and I, I don't want that. So what I want to do is, as we're going over these genealogies, what I want to kind of do is, um, in, in thirds, over the next three weeks, is kind of give you an Old Testament overview. And so we're not just going to like talk about so-and-so, we got so-and-so, we got, it's not going to be like that. What I want to do so that you can have a good working understanding of the Old Testament if you don't know and if you didn't grow up in church and you don't know who these guys are. I want to give you just over the next three weeks um, kind of an overview of what some of these stories in the Old Testament are about and who these people are. And the most important thing is how those things point to Jesus and that they are about Jesus, that they're not just stories for us to kind of think, oh, that was a neat little story, and then we can just keep moving. But how each character in the, in the Old Testament particularly the kind of the big deals, the big guys like David and Moses and Abraham, how, the, how God shows us in the scriptures that these guys prefigure Jesus. And, and I, want to, I want you to see how um, to read the Old Testament in that way and see, okay, these guys in the Old Testament aren't just teaching me moral lessons to, to not lie, but they prefigure Jesus, they point to Jesus, and they help me hope in the gospel. So... Um, that's what we're doing over the next couple of weeks. And then on December 24th, we'll be right on Matthew 118, the birth of Jesus on our Christmas Eve service. And then we'll kind of go into the next part as we go into January. So that's that's what we're doing. Um, and as I said, as we look at these genealogies, we, w- we don't want to think that they're like the table of contents and we just kind of skip over them. Instead, since the, the genealogies are God's words, what we want to do is ask, why did God put genealogies in the Bible? Since they're inspired and inerrant, What's the point of him putting them there? And I need to know. Um, so here's some points of genealogies as we, as we kind of go through there. Um, and I, w- I want you to see that Matthew is a little bit different than Luke. Um, Matthew and Luke are kind of the big Gospels. Matthew, Mark's a little bit different. He, he wrote kind of quickly and he wrote to a different audience, wrote to Romans. And John is not known as the synoptic. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the synoptic gospels. The synoptic just means same eye. So they're kind of all three written in the same kind of style. And John just kind of sits out there as a totally different kind of gospel, very theological and a lot different. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke are, a lot, are, are very similar. But Matthew wrote to a Jewish audience, while Luke wrote to a primarily Gentile audience, which is why their genealogies are placed. If you look at Matthew, like he leads off with the genealogy, the book of Jesus Christ, and even the, his genealogy structure shows he's writing to to a Jewish Jewish audience. Luke doesn't do the doesn't do the genealogy till chapter three, so he's writing to to Gentiles, and certainly they're not actually even interested in, in genealogy. So that's why he includes it later on. And in Luke's um, genealogy, he goes all the way to Adam and shows how Jesus goes all the way to the very first man. But the Jews, like Matthew, were very interested in Jewish kind of wanting to know that he was from Abraham. So he goes from um, Abraham to Jesus. He doesn't go past Abraham into Adam. He just wants to, the Jews are interested. We know the father of Israel's Abraham shows how Jesus gets to Abraham. And actually, he leads off with that, with that genealogy. He doesn't wait till later on. He doesn't cover John the Baptist and those kind of guys first. He starts it because he's writing to a, Jew, a Jewish audience. Um, and the theme of this this entire book, Matthew, and you can see by the name we, t- name we title is, is Messiah. He's writing to this Jewish audience, um, wanting them to see that Jesus Christ 
is the long-awaited Messiah. This Jewish audience was looking for this coming Christ. They, they weren't like, well, there's a guy named Jesus. Who is he? Like some of the Gentiles were. They were looking for this coming Messiah. And he's wanting them to see throughout this entire book, this guy, Jesus, is the guy you've been looking for. Um, Matthew was probably written in the late 50s and early 60s. Um, and so he starts off with this. This is what he says. I'm going to read all six verses and then we'll, then we'll go through. <clears throat> but it's not going to be normal uh, how I go through by verse by verse. It's going to be a little bit different. So this is what it says. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac the father of Jacob and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab. It's what, I've, what I've heard is, if you don't know how to pronounce it, just act like you do, and everybody thinks you do. Um, Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Solomon, and Solomon, the father of Boaz. I have been practicing this all week. Boaz, the father of uh, Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed um, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. The king and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. We're going to stop there. Um, so here's some things that I want you to see about Matthew. And you'll kind of notice here um, the way he arranges it. If you look over in verse 17, you can see how he actually wants to arrange the genealogy. It's very important to understand why some names maybe aren't in there. If you look over in Luke's genealogy and see why Luke maybe has some more people um, then Matthew, you'll understand. Look at verse 17. It says, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon were 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. So we can see that he arranges his genealogy in three sets of 14. Um, and as they wrote their genealogies back then, it was not necessarily a big deal for them to kind of omit some names. Matthew wanted to have three sets of 14. That's the way he wanted to do it. And if you read Luke's genealogy, there's far more names in there. Um, and the reason why is that Matthew's genealogy is, is um, Jesus' legal descent, while Luke is following more natural descent. And so all, all Matthew's doing is writing to a Jew, Jewish audience and following that legal descent so they can see Abraham to Jesus. And he... And there's some reasons why he does 14, like it's easier to remember that way and things like that. But you'll notice that there will be some differences as he does this. Um, there's a, uh, hold on. All right, so um, you'll also notice that if you compare these names, that there's some that are missing. And so what's going on? Why is Matthew missing some people? Why is... Luke adding some of these people. Well, as I said once already, that omitting names was common and also that trying to make it easier to remember was common. But also, as he does this three sets of 14, he's wanting us to see kind of the three-fold condition that happened in the Old Testament of the nation of Israel. If you see, um, as he told us there in verse 17, the first set of six verses, what he's trying to do is show us the promise of Abraham uh, the promise that was made to Abraham and get us over to King David, where he starts the king. And then as he gets to 7 through verses 11, what he's wanting to do is to show you King David to this guy Jeconiah, which the second set of 14 just kind of highlights what would be the royal authority, the, the kings that were going on in the, in the time of Israel. Um, and then in that third set, where they're deported to Babylon, 
what he's trying to show you is that although there isn't necessarily this royal authority anymore, there is this, out of the 12 tribes, Judah, who still contains some bit of rank and government in it. So God is preserving the line through the tribe of Judah for the coming king that's eventually coming. So Matthew's wanting us to see that because these readers, these Jewish readers, knew all that. And so he's wanting them to see those things really easily, and that's why he arranges it the way he does. So what I want to do here is um, go ahead and give you two things. Like these are, these are, there's really, I have three, but I want to go ahead and give you the first two of, of the point of this genealogy. And here's the deal. All three things that you write down today will be the same points this week, next week, and the following week. Um, it's the same reason that all three things that are trying to happen. All right, so here's the first one. What I want us to do, what I want us to accomplish as we, as we go through the genealogy is that we will feel the weight and the anticipation of the coming King and Messiah. That's what he's wanting them to do as, as he's writing this. He's wanting them to, to feel as they're going through the Old Testament stories to start feeling the weight of, oh yeah, there is this coming Messiah. And he points to Jesus and lets them see it. So all of Israel had an anticipation and, and, and anxiety about them where they were excited about this coming king. So what I want to do over the course of this month as we study this genealogy is to, by God's grace, have this this building up of anticipation in our lives. As we think on until December 25th, we are trying to build up an anticipation and an excitement about the fact that we are going to celebrate the coming king because the coming king for us represents our salvation. And so what I want to, you to do is, over the course of this month, try to foster this anticipation that you are very thankful for the coming Christ and that you're very thankful for the forgiveness and salvation that you have in Christ. And so as we go through the Old Testament, I want you to see and feel it in the same way that the Old Testament saints were seeing and feeling it. That our longing and our waiting will be much like theirs was in the Old Testament because they were desiring it so bad. But here's a second thing that I think is really important for us. Um, that's the first coming. But in the same way, I want us to because we live in the year 2010, that we would love and anticipate and feel the weight and pray for the second coming of Jesus in the same way that those Old Testament saints were, were anticipating and loving the first coming of Jesus. The second coming of Jesus um, shows us that that's when His kingdom comes, that we, we are no longer sinners anymore. We will be ushered into His presence. We will be made to be like Him. We will be glorified and it's all over. I mean, it's a great thing for us to think about and pray about and want and desire in our lives. And I, I wonder if you're maybe like me, that as we go through kind of the hustle and bustle of the holidays or even the hustle and bustle of life, as, as we just kind of plug in, plug out, go to work, come home, put our kids to bed, do our tests, blah, blah, blah. We're just tr sh kind of shuttling through life that maybe we're not thinking about and anticipating the second coming of Christ as much as we possibly should. So what I want you to do is as we, over the course of this December, try to feel the weight and anticipation of the coming Savior who saves us and be thankful for that, also foster an anticipation and a desire for the second coming of Christ, that you would think about that more, that you would pray for that more, because we know that when that happens, that we're finally relieved of sin and we'll be ushered into, and if it happens in our lifetime, the presence of our glorious King. So that's the second thing that I want us to to think about that we're more thoughtful of our eternal life in heaven, more thoughtful of our eternal life in heaven than our short life that we have here on earth. So 
um, as we study these these six verses and we look at these people, a mistake that we could make was that we could think, okay, this is a moral lesson. That what we want to do is ask ourselves, um, what's the point of these of these things? Oh, it just means I need to not be so prideful. It means I need I, mean, I need to stop lying. See how they were mean. See how he lied. See how they had a lot of husbands. See how they were just really sexually immoral. That's the point of me reading these things is that I can just conform to a set of rules and that I'll be a good person. And that's not the point of the Old Testament. Um, As I've said, the point of the Old Testament is to point us to Jesus and help us see that everything is pointing to him and that we're excited about and wanting to live for Christ. So um, here's the deal. If... If we, uh, some of us might approach the Old Testament, and we might not even think about it this way, but we might approach the Old Testament this way. Um, sometimes, I, I'm the kind of guy that likes to get to, like, if I go places, I want to get there early. And so I'm, I'm being sanctified by that, that maybe I'm a little kind of OCD on that. And God gave me my wife who, who corrects me in that and keeps me, keeps me accountable that I'm not, you know, trying to get there so early. Um, but like, I want to get to movies early because I think, like, part of the movie is the 30 minutes of previews. Like, I want to see, all the coming things that are going out. Um, and, and some of us aren't like that, though. You're like, that's not the movie. Like, if I miss all that, I don't, it doesn't matter. Um, I can get there, like if it starts at 7, right at 6.59, miss those 20 minutes of previews, and I'm getting the whole show. And I think some of us might kind of approach the Old Testament like the previews. Like we think, you know, that's okay, but if I miss all that and I just grab the New Testament, then I haven't really missed anything. I, I still got the feature presentation, which is Jesus, and I still have it. One of my Old Testament professors um, in seminary, to correct that weird line of thinking, said, well, you have the Old Testament and then the New Testament. We, you shouldn't call it the New Testament. You should just call it the same Old, O-L-E, the Old Testament and the same Old Testament, so that you don't think that, well, as long as I just kind of read the New Testament, then I'm good. Um, the New Testament, I'm sorry, the Old Testament isn't the previews, and that if you just got to get to the feature presentation, the Old Testament is the scriptures. And so what I want to do today is, as we're going through over the next three weeks, um, foster within you a desire to to go into the Old Testament looking for Jesus and realize that it's not all kind of about the New Testament, that all 66 books make up the Scriptures. Um, and so we want to study those 39 that are in the Old Testament. Um, all right, so here we go. Let's go to verse 1 and we'll start seeing some of these things. Um, the book of the genealogy of Jesus. And so he leads off right away pointing to Christ for us and letting us see, it says, of Jesus Christ. This word Christ um, just means anointed one in the Hebrew. It's Messiah. And so as it's moved into our Greek, it's the Christos. But as you, as you go back into the Hebrew, it's, it's the Messiah, which just means the coming one, the anointed one. Um, so he says the book of the genealogy. And really this book should just be kind of thought of as kind of the, the recordings of genealogy. This, this word book is Biblos. And so you could think that the whole book of Matthew is the genealogy. And we know it's just the first 17 verses. But um, the, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And then he uses two names um, before he goes into the genealogy. And I want you to see why he, he picks out those two particular names out of all the people that are in, in the genealogy. He says, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And these two guys are pretty key in the Old Testament history. Um, first is the son of David. Um, the son of David, David was the king of Israel, really God's first king. We know Saul was the first king, but that wasn't God's plan. He gave him sons. Israel wanted a king. He's like, all right, take Saul. And it just goes real bad. And then finally David becomes a king. And it's, it's pretty good for a while until sin hits him. But we'll talk about that in a second. So um, the son of David, and here's the promise that was made to David in Second Samuel. It says this, 
Um, 2 Samuel 3, 7, 13, it says, He shall build a house for my name, and I, this is God talking, will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's a promise made to David. Now, we don't live forever. So David's throne will not go forever. This is a messianic promise. In other words, it's pointing to the Messiah. It's pointing to the coming king who will live forever. So that's why he, he wants these Jews to see. When, when I talk about David, I'm talking about Jesus. He is the king. And then so he says, the son of David. Then he says, the son of Abraham. So here's the promise made to Abraham in Genesis 12.3. All the Jews knew that Abraham was the king of the Jews. I'm sorry, the father of the Jews, not the king, the father of all Israel. Um, in Genesis 12, 3, this is, the, this is the promise that God made. In Genesis 12, 3, he said, I will bless those who will bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And here's, here's the magnificent promise right here in 12, 3. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth shall be Now, Abraham doesn't get to live forever. And he doesn't have deep pockets that go on forever. So it's not like he gets to walk around and just like Santa Claus, bless all, I mean, I'm not saying Santa Claus is real, bless all the families of the earth and travel around and give them gifts every year. That's not Abraham. Through Abraham, he's saying that there's going to be a seed, a, a coming person, a coming Messiah. And through him, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And so that's why he points to, and he's the father. I mean, he's the beginning of all this. Um, which we're going to talk about in just a second. So Matthew points to David and Abraham because these two guys are key figures in the Old Testament. And he wants them to see that Jesus Christ is from the son of... He is the son of David and the son of Abraham. He is the Messiah. And this is what he said. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And so what I want to do is just kind of walk you through a little bit of Old Testament um, here. And as I said, as we go through the Old Testament, I want you to see that Jesus is in the Old Testament. And how each character prefigures Jesus and how they're all, the, the story of the Old Testament is pointing to the coming Messiah. Alright, so Abraham was the father of Isaac. Abraham was just a, a guy walking around, cruising around, not, not great. Um, we, we know that as we read Genesis, he was a man of great faith. He was just kind of walking around and with, with nothing, and the Bible so key to point out, it was nothing inside of Abraham that God made, that made God say, oh yeah, I want you to be the father. It was, he was just a guy that was pretty sinful. And he said, Abraham, nothing about you is, is making me do this, but because I'm God and I want to, I'm going to choose you and I am going to use you and bless you. And then he makes that promise in 12.3 that all of your children that come out will be blessed. You will be the father of my people. I want to make a nation here on earth and you get to be the guy that gets the ball rolling. And pretty amazing. And here's the deal. Abraham was about 90 years old. And he's like, that sounds good. Um, I'm 90. And so they keep going through the next couple of years and Abraham uh, doesn't have a son yet. And so we see that eventually about when he's 100, almost 100 years old and his wife Sarah and I know that some people say, well, it was different back then. Actually, when the, when the wife was 90, she was really, you know, like 30. No, no, no. The Bible is really key. If you read it, like in Genesis, if you read it, it keeps calling her old. Like she's old. And actually, I mean, it gets pretty graphic. Like she is old, old. Moses says she's old. And that the way of the woman was not with her for a long time. She was old. And so this is a huge miracle. The fact that she becomes pregnant at 90. 
So God is, and they, they, they sin, they tried to get a son first, and she's like, I'm not getting pregnant. Here, take my, my maidservant, and they have Ishmael, and God said, no, it's not Ishmael. There, I will have a son, you will have a son, and then we see later that it's Isaac. And so we, we kind of go into Isaac here, and then um, Isaac has a couple sons, um, but the oldest was Esau, and then we have Jacob. And so every, Isaac thought it's naturally going to be Esau, and he's like, it's not going to be, it's going to be the younger as a matter of fact, we see later on in Romans 9, it says that the, the older will serve the younger. Um, and Jacob, here's the deal. He was a big time deceiver. You know, it starts with tricking his dad, putting some hair all over him and, and saying, I'm the one that's, that's blessed me. And then he gets the blessing. But he was, not, he was not intended in Isaac's mind to be the one who's going to get the blessing. But he was a deceiver. He was not a good guy at all. Um, Jacob was not a good guy at all. But... Um, in Genesis 33, um, he wrestles with God and God names him Israel. And so he gives him the name Israel. So when you see the sons of Israel or the Israelites, that just means people that are from Jacob. And so we have Abraham, we have Isaac, and then we have Jacob. Now Jacob um, ends up having um, multiple sons with about four different women. Um, and she, he has 12 sons. Now, one of those is Joseph, and I know you know the coat of many colors um, and that kind of whole story. But one of the sons is named Judah. Now, here's the interesting thing. As you read this, it says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, doesn't mention Israel. I'm sorry, Ishmael, Isaac's brother. And it says, Isaac was the father of Jacob, doesn't mention Esau, doesn't even reference him. And then it says, because we know as we read the Old Testament scriptures that those two guys were not in the Israelite family. But here's, pretty, here's a pretty interesting thing. He says... And the, um, Jacob was the father of Judah. Now, Joseph was one of those 12 brothers, but he chooses Judah. And incidentally, when we see the 12 brothers of Jacob, or the 12 sons of Jacob, this is the 12 tribes of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. So when you see any time the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament, that's just the 12 sons of Jacob. Um, and he says, the father of Judah and his brothers. Now, why did Matthew mention the brothers this time? He didn't mention Ishmael. He didn't mention Esau. Why pull it in? It's because these 12 brothers, these particular brothers, are actually in the family of Israel. And so he wants you to, to see that. Now, we all think as you're reading Genesis, especially like 38 through 50, 12 chapters devoted to this great man named Joseph. So we're all thinking it's got to be Joseph. It's got to be Joseph. But as we read, especially in some of those poems, we see that Judah is the one who's um, chosen to continue the line of Jesus. That it's going to be through Judah, the lion of Judah. That's Jesus that it comes through. And so Judah is the one who's chosen. Now, Judah <laughs> was not a great guy at all. Um, as a matter of fact, it, Matthew wants to point to that when he says, And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Tamar, um, Judah was the father-in-law of Tamar. And if you read in Genesis 38, it's a pretty horrible little story. Um, I think it's 38. Yes, 38, a pretty horrible little story about how um, Judah gets his daughter-in-law pregnant and has a couple of twin sons, which are Perez and Zerah. Now, as we're reading this, we start thinking, well, this is pretty terrible. Um, we're going to look through here. We're going to see five women that are, that are listed, and usually in genealogies, you don't see women. But Matthew, pretty awesome, lists five women in this genealogy. Um, two of these are actually even Gentiles. All of them are kind of of questionable character besides Mary, and everybody just thought she was of questionable character because she was pregnant at such a young age. Um, some, uh, Rahab is a prostitute, as a matter of fact. Um, it says her name six times, 
in the Bible, um, in the Old Testament stories. And as they wrote, they had to say Rahab the prostitute, like four out of the six. They don't just call her Rahab the prostitute first time and then call her Rahab. They'll call her Rahab the prostitute, then Rahab, then Rahab the prostitute, just to kind of reiterate. And just in case you forgot, oh yeah, Rahab, she was a prostitute. And so this list is just kind of unfolding as some pretty questionable characters. And we're, if you're like me, you start thinking, wait a second, um, Jesus, Jesus is coming from this line. Calvin is particularly commenting on the fact that when we get to Tamar and he's saying, this is getting pretty, pretty bad. Like this is, this genealogy is getting pretty bad. He says that um, what Matthew is wanting you to understand, if we, if we look over in Philippians 2, 7, it says that Jesus in the incarnation, that's whenever he became, God became man. He incarnated himself, became man. Um, when he did that, Philippians 2 7 says that Jesus became nothing literally that's what it says um, and Calvin says that whenever we get to this part of Tamar and really the rest of the genealogy as and we start seeing this is a motley crew of ancestors for Jesus um, Calvin says that he is wanting us to see that Jesus literally like Philippians 2 7 says made himself nothing literally made himself of no reputation that Jesus is intentionally coming through this genealogy intentionally coming through this line of people because there's a point behind it which i'm getting to um this is what uh, the new testament commentary says through such a channel of iniquity judah to perez by tamar the savior according to his human nature according to his human nature was willing to pass on his way from the glories of heaven to the incarnation and to the crucifixion in his people's stead through these guys, through these people, these horrible, wretched sinners. Um, if this be recognized, even the study of a genealogy can become a blessing to mind and heart. I'm going to get to why. If you're already keying in, it's pretty obvious because we're not so much unlike these people. So we have Perez and Zerah, the twins, and um, they get to, uh, as we see here, it says Perez uh, to Zerah by Tamar, the father of Hezron, who was the father of Ram, um, who was the father of Amenadab, who was the father of Nashon. Um, and really, those people are really only listed in genealogies. If you look through the Old Testament, you're not really going to see a ton of stories, or you're not going to see any stories on Hezron or Ram. It's just they're mentioned in the genealogies just to keep you going. Now, we've, we've kind of flash-forwarded now to about 450 years. So what that means is we're in the time of exile. So kind of go back to the 12 tribes. Um, there was a time where we had these 12 brothers, and they had multiple families. And one of those brothers was a great guy named Joseph. And, and so he kind of... His brothers wanted to kill him, and so they didn't like him because dad gave him the coat of many colors and blah, blah, blah. And so they, they, they act like they're going to kill him, but they don't. They sell him into slavery, and so he leaves where all his brothers and all his family are and goes over to Egypt. So here he is in Egypt, and because he's such a good guy, I mean, he honestly um, is a guy that wants to live by and honor God with his life. Um, God blesses him and kind of brings him out of jail and makes him in Egypt the second man in charge. And then a huge famine hits all over the region. Now, his family's still over in what would be, um, you know, the land of Israel. And so this huge famine hits and they hear as, as Joseph is kind of rising to power, he says a famine's coming. He's able to kind of interpret dreams. He knows it's coming. And he just saves up tons of food, food everywhere. And so um, the first seven years were a bunch of food. And so he saves up all this food during the first seven years. And then the famine hits in his next seven years. And everybody all over is looking for food. And the brothers think, 
you know, we, we're out of food. We've got to go to Egypt and get some food. And so they, they go over there and through a series of events, basically, um, he finally reveals that it's him, that he's still alive. He forgives them all. They all move, actually, over to be with Joseph because this is the safest place. There is no food. They move over to Egypt. And we, we kind of flash forward through four, 450 years. And what happens is these Israelites are, are multiplying. God's blessing them. His hand is on them. And they just become Tons and tons of people. And where Joseph was kind of the second-hand man to Pharaoh, um, that Pharaoh died and Joseph died. And these families keep kind of getting, these Israelites get more and more. New Pharaohs, new Pharaohs, 450 years. This next Pharaoh, 450 years later, is like, these Israelites are everywhere. I mean, if we're not careful, they're going to take us over. We need to make them slaves. We need to make them slaves. They're going to take us over. So they enslave the Israelites. And so all of a sudden... We see the Israelites kind of getting a stirring by this guy named Moses to leave Egypt. Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go in. And they want to leave Egypt and go back over to what's their promised land. Lead me into the promised land. And so they go through a series of events where they finally get over. They're kind of on the cusp of um, getting into the promised land. And we see that they've reached the time of of the Exodus. And then we see um, Amenadab, the father of Nashon, now, here's an interesting little fact. If you know this guy, Moses, he had a brother named Aaron. Um, and Aaron was the one who could speak well. Um, and then Moses was the one that couldn't speak well. He's a pretty strong leader. Um, and so they, they were the ones that um, kind of led the people out of exile. Now, Abinadab, or, or Aminadab, his daughter was married to Aaron. And so from Nashon... Um, from Minadab to Nashon and Nashon to Solomon. Now, we, we get to this guy, Solomon. Um, and so we, we go through, and now here's an interesting thing. We, we, get, we get on the cusp here of them going into the promised land. And Joshua is kind of the next Moses. And he said, we're going to go into the promised land, but I want to make sure it's okay. And so he sends a couple spies over into this land to see if they can take it, see if they can get finally get over there. And we read Joshua 2, and we think, it's just kind of coincidence that these two spies just wander into this town and they kind of run into this prostitute Rahab and like, oh, this is just amazing. It's sheer coincidence that we, we run into you. Well, let me, let me let you see something here. As we look through the genealogy, we see how awesome God is. Um, he says that Hezron is the father of Ram, the, fa- the, the father of Amenadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Solomon. Solomon, which... Um, it's hard to see in the Old Testament, but as you study the genealogy, you see Solomon got married to Rahab. Rahab did take a husband after she was a prostitute, uh, prostitute, and it was Solomon. So it wasn't just some kind of sheer accident. This is, this is God's sovereignty working out. When these two spies come and they meet this lady prostitute, this Gentile named Rahab, who takes the two spies in and hides them so her people don't kill them. And then she said, hey, I hid you. They're not going to kill you. Spare my family. Spare my family. And so they say, okay. So they come in there, they slaughter everybody, and they preserve Rahab's little family and bring them into the Israelites. And as they do that, we can just interpret from the scriptures that she met a guy named Solomon, that Rahab met a guy named Solomon, and then Solomon and Rahab the prostitute have a son named Boaz. Oh, awesome awesome Boaz. If you've read the book of Ruth at all, I mean, we see this incredible story. It's, it's, it's kind of like a love story and all the girls love it. Oh, let's do Bo- let's do Ruth. It's such a beautiful love story. And it is. Um, but here's the deal. Um, there was, there was this, this lady, Ruth, who had some hard times. Her, her husband died and she's with her, 
with her mother-in-law and she's just called me bitter. I'm, my husband died and my sons have died and I'm just bitter, um, Naomi. And so she and Naomi, and there was, a, there was another sister named uh, Orpah, but some people can maybe just say she was Oprah because she went after the other gods. Um, and I'm sorry. So, um, so, so Ruth, I'm sorry about that. Ruth and Naomi um, are kind of cruising through they're trying to find and go back to the people of Israel and they go and they, they see that there's this, there's this place that maybe they can find some food and they're, they're, Ruth is a Gentile and she's, she's trying to work in there and find some food that she and Naomi can have a life. And there's a guy named Boaz that comes up. And it says, as we read through the book of Ruth, that he is the kinsman redeemer. As a matter of fact, Spurgeon says that Jesus, our glorious Boaz, Jesus, our redeemer. So as we read the story about Boaz, we see that Boaz is a prefigure of Christ. He is the redeemer of his people. And so he says, Ruth, you know what? There's a lot of people out here. I want you to stay close. I'm going to protect you. And I want you to just glean in my fields, get the food here. And then he goes and he finds out, if you read in Ruth 4, he finds out that um, there is a closer Redeemer. And he goes to the Redeemer and he's like, hey, are you going to marry Ruth? No, I'm getting her. I, and so he marries Ruth himself. And then it, it's pretty interesting that the writer of Ruth wants you to see how that story unfolds. Because at the very end of Ruth, where Boaz, Rahab's son, marries Ruth. And then it points us to, and it, this, little, this last little part here um, about Boaz is in the very end of Ruth. And it says that Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. And then Obed was the father of Jesse, who had seven sons. The youngest son of all those was David, King David. So this is pretty amazing. It's not like these genealogies are just kind of working themselves out magically. And God's like, oh, that's perfect. Let's put, let's put them together. God, from eternity past, is, is sovereignly letting people like Rahab come in and Ruth, a Gentile, who says, Naomi, I will be your people. Your God will be my God. And so we see these great stories of how God is preserving a genealogy and putting some pretty questionable people in here to help us see something, to help us see something. Um, Let's look at this last little bit. And it says, um, and Jesse was the father of David. And look what it says right here. And David was the father of Solomon. Now, he could have just stopped, right? He could have just stopped. But look what Matthew does. Not making David look very good. He says, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Didn't have to say that. Clearly didn't have to say that, but he did. Here's, here's my goal. Here's my, here's my point three, or the third thing I want you to see. Is that God loves and uses some messed up people to bring his son into the world. Point of application, God loves you and will use you to bring about his purposes in the world. I mean, why does he say the wife of Uriah The wife of Uriah is Bathsheba. When David should have been out at battle, stayed back, wasn't being a good king, supposed to go out to battle, sees someone else's wife, Bathsheba, whom David wickedly tore away from Uriah. He had sex with her, maybe even could have been rape. Maybe could have been rape. 
and then sent her innocent husband Uriah to the front lines in order to be murdered to cover up his wicked sin until Nathan the prophet comes and says, you are the one. And kind of a little parable that he teaches David. Didn't have to say wife of Uriah, but why does he do it? Why does he walk us through this genealogy so that we can see, listen, God loves you. You can be used by him. There's not anything going on in your life that excludes you from getting to see amazing things happen in your life. For the mom, the, sing, the mom here who, who has a ton of kids and you're staying at home and you don't know how you can get by and you wish that you could parent better, God is saying to you, it's not too hard. I can use you even though you feel like you don't have anything together. To maybe the dad who's, who's virtually absent from your, life, your kid's life. You focus on almost all the other things in order to provide for them, but you forget the most important thing, which is them, your family. God can use you. If you're addicted to pornography, don't let that be the thing that makes you think, God can't use me. I've got this horrible, wicked sin I'm carrying around. Repent. God can use you no matter what your past is. If you're a college student that struggles with addiction, if you're a young um, couple who's not yet married and you're struggling with physical sin, and you think, well, once we get married, then God can start using us. That's the biggest lie from Satan in the world. Repent, turn, and be used by God now. There are people all around you right now that God wants to influence through your life. Maybe um, for some of you single guys and girls who can't stop thinking about that future spouse and why God hasn't brought them in your life right now. And you find yourself dreaming and thinking and hoping and wishing more about that future person you haven't even met more than Jesus. And you feel like, once I get that person, then I'm going to be established in my faith with them and we can start ministry. Don't believe that. God's got ministry for you right now. For some of you guys that are girls that can't remember the last time you even sat down and read your Bible and prayed, and you think, it's just been so long since I've even been intimate in a relationship with Jesus. I'm so far gone. I'm just going to kind of cruise through these next whatever, and when I get to heaven, I'll be good. But listen, you can be intimate now, and you can be used now. God loves you now. God wants to use you right now. And for some of you young married couples who harbor resentment towards each other, there's, there's struggles that you have. You have disagreements with each other. And instead of putting down your pride, you struggle with that sin of wanting to point out your other spouse's sin all the time, or your spouse's sin, not your other spouse, your, your spouse's sin. And you can't just repent. You can't just repent and say, you know what? I'm tired of having these sins cloud my life and make me think that I can't be used. Maybe it's not sin. You know, maybe it's not sin. Maybe it's just where you're from. Maybe you didn't grow up wealthy. Maybe you didn't grow up intelligent. Maybe you didn't grow up with the right set of circumstances. Maybe your family history is just so embarrassing. You think that um, God can't use me. Listen, Matthew intentionally lists five women in this genealogy. That's kind of culture back then. A couple of which are, I think are prostitutes. We know Rahab was. 
Your, your family history means nothing to God. That He can't overcome it by the power of the cross through the gospel. Here's the deal. No matter what sin you're in right now, if you had not heard one thing, if you had not heard one thing, listen to this. This is the most important thing that I believe I'll say all day. And hopefully this is from Jesus, not from me. If your sin or your family history or your lack of whatever is keeping you from thinking that you can be used, if you would just let Whatever it is that you think it is that's keeping, from, keeping you from being used by God and realize how loved you are by God, if you would end your life, if you would end your thoughts with the same way this genealogy ends, it ends with Jesus. If you would just let yourself realize, no matter what my sin is, no matter what my past is, as long as I will, I will end with Jesus and not realize these circumstances, then you can and you will be used by God. He has amazing unbelievable plans to you to do things through you to 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 advance his kingdom to see all kinds of people around you get saved to see your life not just stay at this kind of stagnant place in sanctification where i'm just continuing the same sin for years and i can't break he's got all kinds of plans for you to accelerate in holiness and so if you will let if you will see this through that you need to let your genealogy in your family circumstances, your family tradition, your sin end with the same way this thing does. It ends with Jesus this morning. Everything does. Everything points to him. Everything's about him. So maybe as we go into this first song, maybe you just need to think and reflect and repent. Maybe you need to realize that God is way bigger than you thought and stop making excuses about why you can't be used right now. Stop rationalizing that Whenever I get through the sin in five years, that's when everything will be good. Um, you need to repent from that sin and turn to Jesus. You need to realize that God's not waiting for you to turn into someone five years later once you got all your junk together or you have a spouse or you finally can, can settle down because your job's crazy or whatever. But God wants to use you right now. And maybe you are so involved in life you are missing that. And you're not looking towards that second coming like he wants us to do. And we're not thinking about kingdom as much as we should be. And we're not thinking about holiness as much as we should be. And we're making excuses. Let's not do that. So maybe during this set as we go, we're going to go into a time of worship. We worship afterwards. We hopefully hear from God through his word and we respond through song. We respond through confession of sin. We respond through prayer. We respond through however the Holy Spirit leads you. And so maybe right now you need to stay seated and think and pray and repent from some of those sins that you think you can't get away from, which you know you can because you have the Holy Spirit inside if you're a Christian. Maybe you just need to think. Maybe you just need to pray and then join us and sing and worship with us. And lastly, for you who don't have any church experience and you don't know Christ and you've never been involved in anything and maybe you for a long time you've kind of been in church world but know that you're not a believer. Listen. In the same way that for Christians that can be used by God and realize that they're loved by God, you can become a Christian. There isn't sin you have to clean up in your life first in order to become a Christian. As a matter of fact, the gospel is pretty clear. God wants you to come to him nasty. He wants you to come really, really sinful so he can clean you up and he can get all the glory for purifying you and cleansing you and making you as white as snow and making you just like Jesus. 
And you can have that today. You can experience Christ today. You can be forgiven and know that you have an eternity with Him. So if you don't know Jesus this morning, I invite you to put your faith in Him and come to know Him. I'll be right over here during the first couple songs. And if you'd like to think or you'd like to pray or you'd like to talk, please come down and talk. And I just invite you, however the Holy Spirit's leading, to maybe think and pray during some of this time. And, and stand and rejoice and sing with us when you're ready. While Cameron leads us in worship. Let me pray. Jesus, you are our king. In the way that David, when he was a little shepherd boy, killed the giant for Israel, the, the thing that was the greatest thing in their life that kept the nation of Israel from advancing forward. Jesus is our king who killed the giant in our life. Our sin. You're our glorious Boaz. As we had no family, you redeemed us and brought you brought us into your family. And we're all just like Abraham. There's nothing within us we know that is great. But you are great. And so, Lord, I pray for us all as we have studied this and as we looked at the Old Testament and seen some of these people, that Jesus comes through this line and that you are coming through that ancestry. <laughs> and it shows us that you will use sinners to bring about your purposes and that you will use us so God, I pray that we won't believe the lies of the devil who say we can't be used. But when we realize our sinfulness, that's exactly where you want us to start being used. So I pray for my friends here, if there's sin they need to repent of, that they would do that this morning. That they would do real business with Christ. That they would keep their heads bowed and that they would pray for forgiveness and that they would say, today is the day I'm turning around. I'm not going to make excuses. I'm not going to look till five years from now when I finally have things together that God wants me now to realize that I'm loved by Him now. He wants me to, to stay out of sin now and be used by Him now. And so I pray, Lord, that I myself included, we would repent of these things and that we would not look to some future version of ourselves, but who we are right now. And that you want to use us right now because we know we're not even promised tomorrow. Our life's a vapor. We love you, Father, and we just ask that you would be with us now as we worship. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.